everybody, and welcome to That's Absurd. Please elaborate. I am one of your hosts, Trace. And I am the other one of your hosts, Julian. And this week, we have a very special guest. Sari Riley is here with us. Sari, why don't you tell our audience who you are and what you do? Hello, I am the, the secret one of your hosts. I am a co-host of the science podcast SciShow Tangents, um, which is similar in vibe to your podcast. I guess it has slightly more of a game show structure, but is a lightly competitive knowledge showcase where um, my friends Hank, Sam, and I uh, all share science facts and nerd out about them. Yeah, it, it it's definitely similar. Uh, I am a little worried because the whole thing is just about kind of flexing on all your co-hosts about how much you know, whereas Trace and I are like kind of one-upping each other in idiocy. So I think that's the <laughs> distinction. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. They're leaning into the knowledge. We're leaning yeah. into the... And we're like, we're pretty dumb, but we're doing our best. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I've been on tangents once, Julian, and I did okay. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I've seen the competition. (laughs) (laughs) You were great, Trace. And you were one of our early guests, too. So we were even still figuring out how to how to play a game with someone else. And you brought a lot of fun and expertise. And so thank you. I hope I can bring a little whimsy here because I am like billed as the science expert, even though I'm mostly good at biology. Uh, And so I'm used to being like, okay, I got a fact check. I got a fact check and not what is this weird thought experiment? And and like, what if we go down this rabbit hole? Yeah, Yeah, that is that is great, because when we first talked, you know, to for me to tell you a little bit about the show and how we operate. And I told you, like, yeah, we're all about goofy questions. A lot of listeners submitted ones. But when we have a guest, we want the guest to bring one that we can answer. And you were like, I hadn't thought of one. And I was like, okay, maybe, you know, in a few days, like Monday, take the weekend, think of something. If you think of anything, uh, get back to me. And you sent me an email and you had like five bangers. Yeah, (laughs) they were so good. The spaziest, like we saved the rest of them because I was reading through them. I'm like, that's a good one. That's a good one. (laughs) I want, how can we do a five question episode and they're all series? Like they were so good. Honestly, we got to find a way to do that. That would be great. Yeah, we're going to have to do a series or something. The series yeah. I can't wait. I'm, I'm subscribed. I'm ready to listen. I'll get that notification and be like, oh, just for me. <laughs> That's great. That's how we get listeners. We'll we target a... to one yeah. specific listener at a time. Well, we don't We're have an extremely that many. catered show. Yeah, this is the Sari episode. This is the Jocelyn episode. Yeah. Is the... Our listeners are all just the guests yeah. for that episode. Uh-huh. And my mom. Yeah. My mom loves mom. this show. Yeah. Great. And if you have never listened to the show before, a little bit about what you're about to get into. Uh, In each episode, our guest and our host each answer a question. The questions are usually listener submitted or we make them up ourselves or the guest brings one. And so we sort of touched on that already, but I thought maybe we should say that. And then uh, in each episode, we sort of try and stick to as much of the science research as we can. So when you ask an absurd question like why the sky is blue, we're going to try and dig into the actual science behind that. So why don't we get into our first question for this one, which is actually a question from a listener named Gerald. Hi, I'm Gerald from Delaware. My question is, can animals tell jokes? This came about because I was thinking how we find innocuous things our cats, dogs, or other pets do funny while they 
probably don't see the humor themselves, which made me then wonder, do they have a sense of humor themselves and can try to tell each other jokes or make each other laugh? One day in the future, will we have, instead of birds and squirrels on YouTube to entertain cats, we would have cat comedians? Thanks for taking my question. Wow. I mean. Stand up, stand up cats. (laughs) To entertain other cats. I think it's really important. And I love this question because I have cat uh, and cat likes to watch things on TV, even regular (laughs) like reality television, funnily enough. Favorite cat comedian, Bill Furr. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, come on. There have to be other cat comedian names. uh, George... Carlin. I tried to do George Carlin. I couldn't get it. I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> yeah, that'd be more of a dog comedian, you know, like yeah. they're cha- George Carlin because they're chasing Because I got to Jimmy Kennel Ooh. instead. Ooh. That's also a dog, though. Oh, that's <laughs> good, though. One. That's still really good. I like that one. <laughs> See, the cats are the writers and then the dogs are the comedians. I think that's how it would mm. go. Sarah Silver Wand Toy. <laughs> yeah, you know, just like really those are force words it. that you put together. <laughs> just really forcing it in there. Vaguely cat related. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into the question rather than us trying to make a cat. We'll th- we'll think of one later. So this whole answer, by the way, is just going to do every comedian's least favorite thing, which is overanalyze humor. Um, but that's okay. I, you know, I'm fine with, <laughs> with doing that. Tell me the science of jokes. <laughs> how, have, how have we quantified and analyzed funny? <laughs> exactly. And so more or less, yes, I do think that there is some examples of animals telling jokes. It's not jokes the way that we think of them, though. Animals are funny to each other. They do play and they do actually laugh. Um, we do have examples of this, and I'm going to get into all of that in a minute. The The question hinges on telling jokes, though, and that requires a bit of higher order thinking, um, which we don't necessarily have in a lot of animals. So you may be able to kind of guess that primates are going to feature in some of this, not so much cats and dogs. Uh, although I did focus a lot on pets in terms of my answer. So first question I had for this was, are there examples of animals being funny other than to us? Like, Cats can be funny to us, but they're not necessarily doing it on purpose, right? Because we don't really know what's going on in their head. But we do have really good examples of pets kind of communicating with each other. So when a dog is playing, for example, Julian, you have a dog. Uh, what what does Pepper do when, when Pepper wants to play? Uh, she does the little play bow, right? Yeah. Where she, she puts her little paws out and she ducks her head down. She's like, let's do something fun. Come on, let's go, right? Yes. She wags her little tail. That's totally exactly dog communication for I want to play. And there's been science to support that. What about cats? Sari, do you have a cat? I do have a cat. And I have the laziest cat in the world. <laughs> um, but I feel like when she wants to play, she gets a little more mischievous. So mm. starts getting more active, batting at things, kind of approaching me and... I think like batting things around or getting kind of nippy or sticking out her claws a little bit. Right. Yeah. So cats will play, they'll stalk, they'll jump, they'll, you know, do all little kind of hunting practice stuff. We have a cat and a dog in this household and we always talk about how their communications are exactly opposite. (laughs) Right. Like when the dog wants to play and it bows, the cat's like, what are you doing? And it gets annoyed and swats at her. And then when the cat is clearly playful and like on her back and swatting, the dog is like, oh, I'm under attack and like nip. At the cat, <laughs> and I think it's fun. And I also think it's funny that like a purr kind of sounds like a growl, and so I feel like the two species are just like 
meant to never understand each other based on what I've seen in my house. Uh, you know what they say, dogs are from Mars and cats are from Earth. So, Cats are from heaven, how dare you? Oh. <laughs> we're really but trying dogs to, are from Mars. We're truly trying dogs to get the, the internet to love this podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> so play in animals is important because play involves laughter. And dogs do actually have what they call dog laughing. So usually when your dog, Julian, like when Pepper does that bowing sound, they typically a dog will make a panting sound. It'll kind of be like a... <laughs> sound uh, and that is dog laughter and dogs actually make that noise with each other while playing so even uh like not as kind of specific like dogs do but so do wolves and other kind of canine species they'll be playing with each other and they'll like bite each other in the neck and they'll roll around and they're usually making that dog laughter sound while they do it to indicate to the other dogs like socially to tell them oh i'm just playing (laughs) i'm just playing with you (laughs) And it's like dogs have a dedicated like JK. Yes, absolutely. They do. Uh, And there have been studies with the spectrographs of this panting. And they noticed that it was to humans. Panting kind of sounds like panting, right? It's like that sound doesn't really sound that different from I'm kind of tired. I've been playing for a while sound. But in a spectrograph, you can really see that it's a more breathy kind of forced exhalation. And they do this with other dogs. If you play this audio for a dog in a like science you know lab the dog will look around for what it is pick up a toy do the little bowing motion they want to play and they know what it means which is so cool and with dogs that have been victims of abuse and neglect it can reduce their stress levels they have found just playing that sound for them is like oh my gosh there's laughter some other dog is laughing near me and again we call it laughter it's not really laughter but I thought that was really neat and we associate laughter with play and so do we when it comes to kind of anthropomorphizing this this thing that other animals do. Um, but dogs aren't the only ones that do it, and that's the cool part. Uh, so we know what's going on inside the heads of a lot of social animals in terms of how they're interacting with us, their behaviors. Um, but humans, we laugh all the time. Uh, and the reason laughter is important is the same exact reason. It tells other humans what's going on and what we're thinking. And laughter starts as early as three months, like really, really early in baby development. And according to a uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences study, they recorded audio of people laughing and they said, okay, some people were strangers and some people were friends in this laughing, these laughing clips. They asked 966 people in 24 different societies to determine just from the laughing clips how close the people were as friends. How well do you think that you could do that? Like if you just heard two people laughing, like Julian, ready to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And then they'd be like, Sari, how close are those two people? Are they friends or are they strangers? Yeah, and like like, rate it on a scale of one to ten. Be like, oh, you're kind of like... Uh, go out for coffee every once in a while. Kind of oh, this is my nightmare, though. Like, what if they make some sort of app where you can, like, analyze somebody's laugh and then it tells them, like, that person doesn't actually didn't think your joke was funny. Oh, no. Or, like, they're just being nice to you. They're just humoring you. This is I think this is a dangerous path that they've set down on. And I don't like it. I think this is the new like relationship quiz. Laugh together, and then the app will tell you: Are you compatible? Are you a, a are Gemini you and a Cancer? Are you d- compatible together? But like, <laughs> not only can you make each other laugh, but are your laughs do they sound yeah. 
like you're compatible. But, like, how confident is the science in it, right? Like, is it like 90% of the time we're, we're correct or like better? Because what if somebody's making relationship decisions based on this? Honestly, though, if somebody's going to use a laugh app to determine whether you should be soulmates, you don't want none of that. Bail. I kind of get out of that. You know, I like that. I kind of like the idea. If they don't make you laugh, get out of there. You know, run away. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. Anyway, so they played these these audio recordings of people laughing for for people who don't know those people. And of the 966 respondents, half to two thirds got it right. They were able to listen to people's only their laughter and determine if they were strangers or friends uh, just from listening to them laughing. That's how powerful laughter is as a tool and how much it's ingrained in us. We understand that two strangers laughing sounds somehow different than two friends laughing. And this is something that we use all the time, and primates use this as well. So primates and higher-order apes will use grooming to bond. I think most most biologically friendly people probably know that, right? You can picture uh, primates like kind of grooming each other, picking little bugs on each other's sticks and cleaning their furs, and you know they're just sitting there doing this jaw-jacking like you do. Uh, and that releases endorphins and creates bonding. And it's great to do one-on-one. You can do it in a group. Like you could have a little circle of groomers, you know, they're all just kind of grooming each other. And then you could have a little chain where there's like a guy at one end and a guy at the other end. And they're all in a little chain, like a little little row. And they're all grooming each other and having a nice time. Uh, the thing is, these endorphins are released in everyone involved and they promote this bonding. But in a paper, a 2022 paper for the Royal Society, Robin Dunbar a famous experimental psychologist. Uh, maybe you've heard of Dunbar's number of like 150 people is the most weak ties you can have and 50 people is like the most friends you can have and you divide it by three each time. So you can have like six or seven close friends um, and it, it Dunbar's number is, is involved in that. Anyway, he suggests, what if your little social grooming group gets too big? How can you, you can't hmm. like, you can't group group up 100 people and they're all grooming each other and everybody's happy. You can't fake grooming you can't, you know, text message grooming. Uh, you, and so, you need a grooming pyramid scheme, right? <laughs> like, I'll do two people's back, and then they'll do two people's backs, and then so on and wow. so forth. I mean, yeah. that would be fun, but... Yeah, you got two hands, you can do it. I mean, in college, there was always this guy who wanted to have cuddle parties with everyone, and that was <laughs> get, sort of like away. that. Get away. Yeah, we ran get away we from that I, I never went to them, but... Yeah, and then he's like, let me pull out my laugh app and show you how compatible we are. <laughs> he had like 12 brothers and sisters, so either it was hugged too much or not enough. That's how I felt. I wasn't sure, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, he's just used to being around that many people, probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's how I'll... I like to frame it that way, I me think. Me too. Yeah, he was just, you know, he just wanted to cuddle. People went, mm-hmm. they had fun. Anyway, as we evolved, <laughs> there was there was more of us and there was no way to do a social pyramid scheme of grooming. And so Robin Dunbar postulates that laughter is a social evolution that allows us to like kind of groom from afar. We get these social bonds without actually having to interact with each other. As our groups got bigger, we could laugh like, oh, we're going to go wrestle over here, but we're laughing so you know that we're not actually fighting. So we're signaling to the other members of our little social groups that, no, no, this is okay. It's fine. We're, we're fighting, mm. but we're not really fighting in a mean way because if you don't know us, you might not know that. And that way we have these kind of social tools to tell other people that we're not a threat, but we're friendly, or as Sasha Winkler, a UCLA professor of communication says, when we laugh, we're often providing information to others that we're having fun and inviting others to join that fun. Some scholars have suggested that this kind of vocal behavior is shared across many animals who play, and as such, laughter is the human version of the evolutionary vocal play signal. 
and she didn't say this, but that I just mentioned for dogs. So it's a very similar idea. I am glad that human laughter sounds the way that it does. I would be maybe very distressed if (laughs) our laughter was dog laughter instead. If people, if I told a joke and everyone went, (laughs) man, that was a good one. Yeah. That would be weird. Yeah. It'd be really weird. You're at like a stand-up comedy show and all Ooh. and somebody's like, and that's my joke. And the whole audience just goes <laughs> And we're all bowing yeah. to each other like that. That was fun. That was so fun. Really good yeah. joke. Can't wait for some comedy. Uh, <laughs> tell me a joke. So I think we we it worked out well for humans to for our laughs to sound the way that they do. They're fun. They're whimsical. I like that you bring that up because our laugh is quite similar to the laugh of primate cousins. Which is really cool. It's sort of like if you took our laughter and mixed it with dog laughter, right? It's sort of panty, but also kind of something different. And you can tell exactly what it is. There was actually a study of primate laughter where they tickled chimpanzees and gorillas <laughs> and orangutans. And Whose job was it to be the gorilla tickler? The video that I have <laughs> here is the person doing it through a cage. And the gorilla keeps t- taking its its foot and like putting it between the bars so that they can tickle it. And then he takes it away. Then he puts it back again. Then he takes it away and he puts it back again. And it's so cute. <laughs> okay, good. Because I'm picturing like when you get into a tickle fight with your sibling that gets way too intense Ooh, and like yeah. the gorilla finally just snaps and it's like, I said, stop it. And then it like tears you limb from limb. Yeah. So I was worried about this, probably this poor grad student that had to be the gorilla tickler. <laughs> you put that on a resume? Just like yeah. add that? <laughs> Absolutely. Gorilla tickler, you know, for like six months. Primate behavioral induction specialist, right? You got to come up with the the proper jargon for your job application. Yeah. Behavior induction specialist. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. (laughs) Wait, can you translate that? Gorilla tickler. Gorilla tickler. (laughs) So what did you do? Oh, I tickled gorillas. So I got this feather duster. (laughs) They do it with their fingers. They do it with their fingers. Oh, they're in it, yeah. They really are in there. It's pretty wild. Here's the YouTube clip. It is really cute. Right? The girl is totally like, go ahead. You ain't going to do it. You're going to do it. Uh Isn't that funny? It's so weird. That's, yep, that was somebody's job, was gorilla tickler. Right? And it's probably still on their resume to this day. But that panting sound, that's the gorilla, like, quote unquote, laughing. Uh, and again, gotcha. we use the term laughing because we're anthropomorphizing the animals, but um, they have their own, I, I, you, they call it essentially like a play vocalization. Um, yeah. And it reduces blood pressure and increases oxygen levels, promotes the immune system. Uh, in humans, rather, it does all those things. It's good for digestion and relaxation, social bonding. You know, laughter is really important, and it's also important for animals. And in a 2022 study in bioacoustics, they found 65 different species of animals can laugh. They have a whole list, and, and what it is, what causes it, and what it sounds like in the paper, it's really great. So parrots, gerbils, mongoose, mongoose. Uh, mongooses. mongooses. Mo- I, I learned this recently. Mongooses. mongooses. African elephants, fox, uh, specifically one fox, a badger, a polecat, a mink, a stoat, seals, sea lions, dolphins, orcas, chimps. What does the fox say? I'm sorry, I had to insert that reference from six or seven years ago. I did look, uh, and it makes a similar sound to the dog. It's more like a panting sound. So, oh, okay, yeah. good to know. But it does, I think the sound, isn't the sound just like, ah! Ah! 
Something like that? Yeah. That's anyway. It. Yeah, fox noises are bonkers. Thank you. It was an excellent impression. Uh, <laughs> chimps, bonobos, baboons, gorillas, orangutans, several macaques, different monkeys, lemurs, domestic cats and dogs, and of course humans, obviously. Although that was not listed in the paper. We can't be sure. It's not definitive. <laughs> <laughs> there are even arguments in the paper that reptiles like turtles, but also maybe fish should be able to laugh, but we just don't know how to trigger it or maybe don't know how to record it. And that we also probably shouldn't call it laughter, just the positive vocal communication. So with all of that, let's bring it back to the question. Can animals tell jokes and do they get humor? Because according to research from the late 70s, higher apes do have the cognitive ability to understand humor, although we have no idea why that would be the case, like uh, other than potentially telling other social people in your group that you're fine. Uh, but why would you want humor? Like what is the evolutionary purpose other than maybe bonding. Um, and there is this paper in the 70s, the Handbook of Humor Research said, something unexpected, out of context, inappropriate, unreasonable, illogical, or exaggerated is what humor is, right? There's two different theories. There's the incongruity theory, which is uh, something that doesn't go as expected. You know, you fix a door and when you go to open it, it falls off and hits you in the face. Uh, that's humor, right? Uh, you can tell because of the way I described it. That's the height of comedy. Uh -huh. Thank you, Julian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then there's violation theory, which is something threatens your well-being, identity, or belief structure, but simultaneously seems okay. And that's also considered, like, humorous. Oh, that's the edgy, that's that more edgy, edgy comedy. Humor. Like, ooh, ooh. I, you're, I'm going to punch you in the face, but I'm not actually, and thus, you know, it's funny. So... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Julian should have done this question. He's Trace. <laughs> I don't think I'm any better equipped. It's there's nothing less funny than breaking down why something's funny. There's just nothing that more kills like a joke. It's true. It's true. As we know. You know. So Coco the gorilla is a very famous gorilla who learned some signs. Uh, they didn't learn sign language that's the that's how you're not supposed to say coco the gorilla knew sign language because she didn't but she did know some signs she once apparently tied her trainer's shoelaces together and then said chase and then made <laughs> laughing noises <laughs> that's, am that's that, an amazing that's joke. amazing though right it's a great because, joke like, but it's also incredible because it shows you this gorilla understands the cause and effect of like if i tie your shoelaces together which i have never seen before you will not be able to move your feet and chase me mm -hmm. and it and you will probably fall over and it will be funny yeah yeah that's incredible the question i have for you julian then is did the gorilla think that or did the person <laughs> personify the gorilla into thinking that i don't know oh no because oh no you're gonna make me get so no, existential. i don't know that's the thing we, we we can't be sure right it could just be that they know that your feet are involved in chasing and maybe it had nothing to do with the shoelaces like we have no idea here's a clip from coco.org i put it i'm watching it now um the first one is coco's middle name so i've got coco with a researcher what's your middle name her middle name is Devil. That's the edgy, the edgy that's the violation that's theory. The okay, uh -huh. Sari, for the second part of the clip. Coco classifies Penny. So, talking to the researcher whose name is Penny. You, Gorilla. Me, Gorilla! <laughs> and then Coco scampers yeah. off. That's my favorite. Is like, Coco is like a sick bird. Uh -huh. You're a Gorilla, ha ha ha, and then takes off. <laughs> 
Penny's reaction, by the way, is no, Coco, ha 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 ha, and like scampers with her and then says, I'm a human. And Coco doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Coco's like, Coco's, Coco's like, you're violating now. the first rule of improv. You can't say no. <laughs> you got a yes and, Penny. That was, they did, they did it off camera. You know, they didn't want to do that in front of the audience. Just have that yeah. discussion. <laughs> Backstage later, they're like, you really ruined this live show. Yes and. Penny. When I give you a suggestion, you have to roll with it and build the scene around it. Coco was really into improv. I don't know. People know. <laughs> yeah, they don't talk about this, this deep, rich part of, of her life. Yeah. Exactly. So these two clips are, they're examples, literally from Coco.org, of Coco's sense of humor. And I, I want to challenge this just a little bit because, you know, science a little bit. Sari, if I ask you your middle name and you say anything that's not a name, would that be a joke? I, you know, I don't think so. I think it's it's funny and I think it falls under that category of humor. But I think there are situations where it's not necessarily an intentional joke, like you were mm. saying. Yeah. Like if I say my yeah, middle well, name is Snickerdoodle, it's funny. It's a funny word to say in my mouth. It's a funny word to hear. Is it a joke? I don't know. <laughs> I disagree. I, what if you asked me my middle name and I was like, danger. That's a joke. Right? Yeah. Danger's my middle name. It's like playing on a... Okay, I'm not going to break down the joke, but you, you yeah. understand why it's a joke, though, You're not right? a dangerous person, Julian? No, yeah. No, me, Julian Danger Huguet. <laughs> That's not like a full, yeah, who you are down to your core. Yeah. It is. Right in the middle of me is danger, <laughs> and then flanked by legal names on either side. Right. But danger in the middle. <laughs> so uh, my thought was, if you ask a gorilla what its middle name is, and it just says pizza, like, I might laugh at that joke. But the gorilla might just want to eat, but it, and it doesn't understand your question at all. And so it's like an interesting example of humor. The chase one, I think, is a better example, but we don't have a video clip of it. And there was another non-videoed example of like, uh, what can you think of that's hard? And Coco signed rock and work Aww. as two examples. Uh, and I think, again, I don't want to say that she wasn't speaking or that she didn't like understand what was happening. Um, but she didn't necessarily understand the complexities of humor, but she did make what we would consider jokes. And the question is, are we making the joke in our brains using, you know, like benign violation or incongruity or did Coco make the joke? Mm. And we don't know. Like we just, That's we tough. don't really know. There's no way for That's us to be tough. inside of Coco's head and understand why she was doing that. But the human capability to project onto animals is basically, uh, you know, gigantic. Okay, here's what you need. You need somebody with no sense of humor whatsoever. Got it. To be a gorilla researcher. Like somebody who, who does not un- understand when something's a joke. And then you put them in front of Coco and you see if Coco starts getting frustrated because they're like, why, why aren't you laughing? <laughs> That's a good joke. <laughs> That I just told you, <laughs> and you're just sitting there, and then we'll know if Coco intended to do a joke. <laughs> that's my that's my grant money, please. Okay, so to wrap up my question here from uh, Gerald, do we know if animals are telling jokes? We don't. But what we do know is that there is play in animals. We know that they laugh. We know that other animals find those things enjoyable, whether they find it funny or have humor. We don't know, but because we'd have to understand the intent as much as the behavior that we can observe. And recently, researchers do believe that we're on the cusp of an animal humor breakthrough because we've discovered that dogs can understand more nuanced ideas like fairness. We've understood that spiders have different moods. Like sometimes they're just like, ugh, I don't want to do that. 
which is awesome and very spider. And then dolphins <laughs> might be in on jokes because they can play and vocalize positively than playing just like dogs do. They'll wrestle and bite each other, right? And dolphins will make this specific chirp only when they're playing as opposed to being aggressive. So there are lots of animals that can do these things, but whether they're being funny on purpose, whether we're going to have a cat comedian that can stand up and do funny things for cats, you know, I, I don't know, you know, and if they did, wouldn't they just have litter box humor? <laughs> <laughs> I That was the longest setup in history. That was the longest. You planted that seed forever ago. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I do have one bonus because I love a bonus. Understanding animal humor and happiness could actually help humans as well. Rats, maybe you've seen rats being tickled. It's a video that's been around for a while now. They tickle the rats and they know that the rats like it because they'll actually like chase the hand around their enclosure to try and get tickled more. And when they do that, they make an ultrasonic, like high pitched kind of sound. And they found in scans of their brains while making that sound that they release this specific brain chemical and they've made medicine that releases that in people to see if it can oh, wow. help us treat, like, treat depression which is cool. I have a question that's come up from all your research that you've shared. Yeah. Why can everything get tickled? What, Ugh. why? We're going to have to answer why that. Why tickling? We're going to have to, we're gonna have we're gonna to have cover to that, that. Like, why can't you tickle point? yourself? Because I can't, doesn't do anything. But like, okay, so apparently primates can get tickled. That makes sense to me. But then like other mammals too. And it's like, where does it stop? Octopuses? They'd be world champion ticklers. Oh, they'd be so good at tickling. Oh, tickling. I feel like it's kind of benign violation, right? You think that something's coming at you. I just like looking way at the way that you approach. Way to use a vocab word. I loved you that. Me something. <laughs> She's already framing it. Yeah. You instead of you're attacking someone, you just like you do a little wiggle, and you yeah. can't. You can't surprise yourself in any way because you're, you know, Ooh. consciously, even if or unconsciously, if you're telling your hands to move in a certain place, you can't tickle yeah. because there's no surprise in that. You know, you're not going to hurt yourself in that way. Right. Um, but if you're going at a baby, they don't know what's coming at them. And, That's right. And you just wiggle your fingers a little bit. It's not an attack. It's just kind of silly. Yeah. And then and then maybe that's the tickle. That's my hypothesis. Wow. Wow. Gonna... And the baby's like, wow, my expectations have been subverted. That's hilarious. Exactly. That is exactly <laughs> what's going through that baby's. That's Trace, you're a dad, thinking. you know. That is what <laughs> my baby thinks of when I tickle it. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. It says, you know, father, I was just thinking of the benign violation theory. And I say, really? <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, we're going to have to look into tickling, but thank you for sharing, uh, Trace, the answer to this question. Yeah. And thanks to Gerald F. for asking it. Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with Sari's question. If you've turned into this, turned into it? You've turned into one. <laughs> you've turned into a science comedy podcast. Oh no. Oh no, I'm a podcast. Am I going to be late to work? If you're tuned into this science and comedy podcast, chances are that you are someone who loves learning and having a blast while doing it. If it wasn't clear, Trace and I are the same way. We thrive on learning new things because it not only enriches our lives, helps us learn new skills, but also makes us really cool at parties. Is that what we are at parties? Are we? We are, right? We're cool. I mean, when you're at my house and I'm at your house, definitely, but like, other houses. Anyway, <laughs> this is all to say 
I am super excited about our new sponsor, Brilliant. Yay! Can I kind of get a little, like, you know, in my feels for a second? Oh, yeah, get those feels. Elaborate, please. Hey, I see what you did there. I am exactly the kind of person that Brilliant was made for. I have always been interested in math, physics, computer science. When I had the chance to study these things in college years ago, I was also really intimidated by them. Yeah. And I avoided taking these classes. And honestly, I regret it. I'm going back now. I'm taking classes at my local community college. I'm loving it. Yeah. But with a family and work, traditional classes like that, I'm finding them really hard to actually fit into my life. So I was really excited when you told me that Brilliant was going to be a sponsor. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, by the way, out there. It's an interactive learning platform with so many lessons on topics that I always wanted to explore and I can do them at my own pace, on my schedule, and in a way that keeps me engaged. You can learn by doing on their website or with their mobile apps. And there are thousands of different interactive lessons in STEM subjects all across the platform. Their lessons are engaging and interactive. You can brush up on like algebra or advanced math, multivariable calculus, differential equations, computer science, Python programming. You can even learn about cutting edge stuff like large language models, neural networks, the things that are powering AI today. Large language models really big right now. (laughs) Large language models. You can learn large language models. <laughs> it's only Gaelic, though. The large language that you can learn is Gaelic. Yeah, ship that. I'm in. We can finally communicate with the Scots. <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Wherever you are in your learning journey, there is a brilliant course that will help you get to the next level. Or, you know, just be basic enough to get you an understanding that you can go and work with. Yeah, they're always adding new courses too. They just launched a ton of lessons focused on analyzing data. That's cool. That's really cool. I think the world would be a better place if everyone had to take a stats class. Oh, totally. And if you haven't taken one, here's your chance. You could just go take a statistics class and make Julian so, so happy. I would appreciate that. Try it out. You can try Brilliant for free for 30 days. Just visit brilliant.org slash absurd or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash absurd. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription and it supports the show, even just trying it out. So go ahead, Check it out. Maybe get sucked into a few lessons. Trace and I are going to be here with the rest of the episode when you get back. If you get back. Oh, I hope you get back. They come back and they know more than us about everything. (laughs) They're just like, these guys are idiots. (laughs) Their brains are the size. This huge brain coming out of their cranium. I've absorbed all knowledge. Why do I listen to this podcast of dummies? I have no time for your absurd antics. But I would definitely take one on large language models. A Scottish AI robot that nobody can understand. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, turn on the lights! Sorry! Arm the burglar alarm! It supports the show. It'll be great. Welcome back to That's Absurd. Please elaborate. Next up, Sari is going to tackle a listener question. But first, Sari, during the interlude, had a very important revelation. Yeah. Sari, what'd you you think of? You know, after learning all about humor, I was so inspired to finally come up with a comedian pun name. Eddie Purphy is the cat comedian for our generation. (laughs) Wasn't that worth half an hour of that? That was pretty good. (laughs) Yes. 
That was on the back burner the whole time. Yeah, just like a slow stew, one of those like forever medieval stews that you keep adding a potato to, whatever. I when you said Eddie, I was like, how's she gonna make an Eddie? Izzard pun. I was like, maybe Eddie Lizard, uh-huh. but I don't know how you make that related to cats. It'd be a good reptile comedian. What if it was a, a, a crossover of Eddie Meowfy and oh. Tom Segpura? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a duo. None of these are good. <laughs> Come on, they're all great. If we had the laughter app right now, it would be... <laughs> Be blaring red. It would be a hundred percent. Wow! Look at how good friends they are. Look how hilarious. Look how much they love laughing together. Wow! I can feel my endorphins releasing already. Uh huh. Amazing. I was also trying to think of Tom Segura, and I couldn't come up with anything. Tom, Se- Tom right. Segura. I only thought of Tom it because Segura. of Sari's. Okay. Well, so, uh, Sari, you decided to tackle a listener question this week. What question are you going to answer for yes. us? Yes. This question is from a listener named Elizabeth. My question is, what would happen if all humans suddenly inhaled carbon dioxide and exhaled oxygen? My poor little brain wondered about this while I was on a hike through the woods. I was half enjoying the beautiful day and half thinking of ways to deal with global warming. When I added in your show and mixed the three together, this was the result. I uh, I think this is a great question. Since you do have a biology background and like can elucidate the exact chemical pathways a little bit of what, what that would mean, I'm actually really curious. <laughs> so... Um, I don't know. Why don't you where where to even start with this one? Where to even start indeed. I had to dig out dust off biology knowledge <laughs> uh, and like biochemistry. I'm looking at chemical equations that I ha- used to memorize and now they've flown out of my brain. Um, what well, are you telling me I'm not going to need to know the Krebs cycle at any given moment? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, Spent all this time learning the Krebs kids, cycle. But you can, as an adult, just Google Krebs cycle. <laughs> what, if I'm, what if I'm on a desert island and a biology exam washes ashore and I need to entertain myself? It's in a bottle and it's like, to get rescued, you must score a minimum of, and then like I have to know the Krebs 70%. cycle. Yeah, then you use your yeah. time on the desert island to like re-derive it, I guess. You get yeah. to be Krebs. <laughs> Uh, and then you get to name it the Julian cycle, and yeah. you win. The you win you get out the of here cycle. cycle. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm gonna use my middle name on the danger. on all my papers. Danger. J H Danger. <laughs> but yeah, so we will start with the Krebs cycle, or the more broadly what the Krebs cycle fits into, which is what humans currently do. So humans breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide because we need to do cellular respiration in order to have the energy to do all the human things from digesting to making more cells to walking around to telling jokes to laughing all these things ho down improv yeah all these things (laughs) clicking the link to look at coco do some (laughs) jokes all of those things those muscle movements um those neural pathways require energy um and the way we make this is through cellular respiration and the equation for cellular respiration the very very simplified version is glucose which is c6h12o6 molecules plus six uh equivalent units i guess of i actually don't know what how to frame that but six uh oxygen gas molecules um which is o2 
diatomic oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you phrase it. Yeah, O2, right? Two oxygen molecules, uh, atoms bonded Two, together. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and that, through a labyrinth of chemical pathways, that is cellular respiration, um, becomes six molecules of carbon dioxide, six molecules of water, and a molecule called ATP, or adenosine triphosphate. Yeah. And ATP is energy basically i love atp yeah the energy currency of the cell right yeah like your bio 101 class in high school atp yeah i love that atp has a theme song (laughs) i I just Uh, made it up i just made it up it didn't have that in your biology video (laughs) no didn't you know no can you believe it secret biology theme song for atp atp Um, I didn't. I didn't know ATP needed a jingle, but now everybody knows. It's yeah. It's advertising. It's got to like beat out the competition for other. Oh, did you want GTP? Ew. You fool! That take the Pepsi challenge. ATP. ATP challenge all, every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, that's the whole point of the podcast. Is to it's true. You got to spice up spice up the biochemistry a little bit um and generally the way that atp works i don't know how heavy to lean on the biochemistry so i'm going to sprinkle in little facts and if if people take away what they will the way atp molecules work is the energy is stored in the chemical bonds and so a lot of times to access the energy stored in an atp molecule um a, a chemical reaction will break off one of the phosphates and turn it into adenosine diphosphate or ADP. Um, and as you knock off one of the phosphates, then the energy in that bond is what cells use to to do things. Um, because everything has to do with, with bonds and electrons and everything once you get down to the nitty gritty of it. And the thing about cellular respiration is that it is a really complicated process. We simplify it down to this one equation because it's easier to wrap our heads around. But it's really several stages, glycolysis, where the glucose gets broken down, um, the Krebs cycle, as Julian is an expert in, ready. Uh, (laughs) Waiting for that desert island exam, that pop quiz. He's taking notes. (laughs) Yep. Um, And then the electron transport chain, and that's really where the oxygen comes in. Oxygen is what's called the terminal receptor of this electron transport chain, the final step in cellular respiration that enables ATP to be formed. I know one fun fact about this, and that is, do you know why cyanide is so deadly? I used to at some point, but tell me. It sounds like you're setting up a joke. It has to do. (laughs) Do you know why cyanide is so so deadly? (laughs) (laughs) Because it tastes like candy. No, um, uh, no. So cyanide actually blocks that oxygen Mm. binding point in the final step of uh, the electron transport chain. So you can't continue doing the electron transport chain, which is really like the ATP moneymaker. And so pretty quickly you run out of energy to do things and then your cells start dying. So so don't don't drink cyanide, I guess, is the takeaway there. What it tastes Uh, like. Yeah. You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> That's good advice. Usually podcasts are not supposed to give medical advice and like there's all these caveats. We're not a doctor, things like that. But I think yeah. don't drink cyanide is pretty <laughs> solid advice. Do you think I should have a caveat? Don't drink cyanide, but also don't take my word for it. You know, like 
<laughs> I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Which way do we go on this legally? Yeah. Don't drink cyanide, but don't take my word for it. Or don't drink cyanide, but I'm also not a doctor. <laughs> Uh-huh. It's a loose loose. <laughs> Who's to say, really? Uh-huh. Everybody's opinion is equally valid, I guess. <laughs> Both sides poison. Um, well, I am here to make sure that you guys don't get sued. Yeah. Thank uh, you, Sari. <laughs> with with ridiculous loopholes. So oxygen, obviously, very necessary. We don't if poisons that directly interact with this chemical pathway can ruin it for us. And by that I mean uh, life. Stop ourselves from making energy and life. Your whole day. Uh, yeah, your and whole day. And all days week. afterward. <laughs> Dying really puts a damper on my day. Um, So that is why we breathe in oxygen. And what is interesting to think about is that we don't use every single molecule of oxygen that we breathe in. Mm. The air around us isn't pure oxygen. That would be really dangerous and also very flammable. Um, Our atmosphere (laughs) is actually uh, mostly nitrogen. Around 78% of the atmosphere is nitrogen gas. It's about 21% oxygen. uh, And then smaller bits of things like water vapor, argon, a little bit of carbon dioxide, like 0.04% relative to the rest of the gases. And climbing. And climbing. Yeah, it's small <laughs> right now, but climbing. And as we learned um, in one of our episodes, probably poop. Yeah. You know, just like particles of it. Just, just around. around. Yeah. Sorry, that was the smell episode. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, poop particles, dust particles, bacteria, anything small. You're probably breathing in. You got to be realistic about it. It's Uh, gross and awesome. There's a lot you can't see. Get over it now. (laughs) Um, But so we breathe in around 21% oxygen and then we exhale about 16% um, with each breath. So we exhale a lot of oxygen too. And we do increase the amount of carbon dioxide around because we exhale around 4% carbon dioxide. But... The, the, the thing is, is when we breathe in, the oxygen goes into our lungs and then it diffuses into our bloodstream. But there's only so much of that that can happen. Our bloodstream can only be so saturated with oxygen and we don't want to overload. Too much of anything is bad for the human body. Um, and so we've equipped ourselves to be pretty perfectly balanced in this situation. And so that's one thing that I think a, a nuance to this question is that we don't just chug as much oxygen as possible (laughs) we use it for this very specific chemical reaction that's really important for human life but more oxygen isn't necessarily a good thing for us so we're not just like all a bunch of bros at a party constantly with our oxygen you're like oxygen i'm so oxygenated right now oh my god Yeah. No, don't light that cigarette. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he yeah. explodes. Yeah. Oof. I was Bro. at a wedding this weekend and there was an oxygen bar. It was really interesting. Oh, because you were in the mountains. Yeah, I was in the mountains in, yeah, in, in, mountains right? in Colorado in Vail. Oh. And so we're at like 10,000 feet and people came from all over the country. So they had an oxygen bar and they had like yeah. your oxygen meter there that you would wear while you were at the oxygen bar. It was so weird. It was so weird. That is bizarre. And then was that for the Flatlanders or was that also just to be like, here's kind of like a way to get high a little you bit? Know, honestly, like, I don't know. A lot of people or, were... I sat there for a while, but I was already at 97%, so I don't really like... You were so saturated. saturated. You're like, I'm fine. Um, I'm in like, training yeah. in a hyperbaric They were like, chamber. hey, oxygen bar? And I'm like, no thanks. So full. So full. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. I've got to drive later. <laughs> 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 trying to quit. I'm trying to quit. <laughs> trying to go anaerobic here, guys. 
So the other thing is we like to think about breathing in oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide as an animal thing. So mm. we do it, other mm -hmm. animals do it. Mm -hmm. Cellular respiration provides us with the energy that we need to do all kinds of animal things. But plants also do cellular respiration. They are participating in this oxygen party. Um, and the only difference is that plants also do photosynthesis alongside cellular respiration. So they have a way to both make the glucose and then use it up so that they can have energy so their cells can do things. Yeah, I, I feel like our education system failed so many people because a lot of people seem to think that plants only make oxygen yeah. and don't ever then turn around and like also produce carbon dioxide when it's dark, yeah. when they can't do photosynthesis. Right. And I'm like, God, guys, they, they need do both. They need the energy. Too. They need to access that sweet, sweet glucose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, what would yeah. they do? They just kind of like make sugar and the, not die. And that I don't know how they'd they use wait for it, us right? to come and tap point... it to make maple syrup, obviously. But yeah, the whole point of the photosynthesis, right, is like to store the energy from the sun so then you can turn around and use it, become a forest. Mm. Yeah. Think, <laughs> <is the> <laughs> all plants dream of becoming forests. Not all of them make it. <laughs> yeah, but, one day. No. <laughs> so, so, some of them are just lawns. Oh, <laughs> uh, one day, guys. Nope, here comes no. the lawnmower again. Suckers, here to cut down on your dreams and aspirations. Absolutely tragic. Um, but yeah, besides that, it, it is kind of sad that we, we have these misconceptions about plants. And I think it makes sense to some degree. I don't want to like blame anyone for not knowing because that is why curiosity is so amazing. But I think mm -hmm. it's really easy to paint cellular respiration and photosynthesis as opposites. Like mm -hmm. Photosynthesis, if you look at the chemical equation, it's six molecules of carbon dioxide plus 12 molecules of water plus light energy from the sunlight uh, becomes glucose plus six molecules of water plus six molecules of oxygen. And so if you put those chemical equations, those really simplified descriptions of cellular respiration and photosynthesis side by side, they look like backwards processes and it's easy to be like, well, the, the opposite of an animal is a plant. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they work differently rather than understanding the nuance of it all. And photosynthesis right. is very cool and complicated when you dig into it. The, the places where they occur are organelles called the chloroplasts, which are just in plants. And they have photosynthetic pigments like chlorophyll or carotenoids that help them harvest the light. And there are two main stages of photosynthesis, like Julian was saying. Uh, in the light-dependent reactions, they take energy from sunlight, and it actually drives the synthesis of ATP. ATP. I don't. I don't remember the. Yeah, name I don't either. It wasn't that jingly. It changes yeah. a little every time. It's whatever's in your heart is the theme for ATP. <laughs> Both literally and figuratively. Yeah. <laughs> Great yeah. tagline. Um, <laughs> along with another energy molecule called NADPH. We don't need to worry about that. No jingle for NADPH. Um, wow. <laughs> and these reactions and these light-dependent reactions are actually very similar to ATP synthesis in cellular respiration. I think there's an electron transport chain and everything. Um, and then the light-independent mm. reactions are where that ATP and NADPH drive glucose synthesis um, or some other sugar synthesis. And then cellular respiration happens where they take that glucose and then use it to help their cells move, grow, and do do what whatnot. All the other planty things. Um, nice. And when it's dark out, plants also produce more carbon dioxide than oxygen. 
like also mm -hmm, like Julian mm -hmm. said. My wife's getting a biology degree right now, so I get to kind of like look over her shoulder and be like, oh yeah, I've totally forgot how this is all, how everything works, but it's, I, I'm going to use it on the pod <laughs> later. She even said it to me yesterday. She's like, I noticed on your podcast, you kind of talk about like what I'm learning in class all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pilfering your education. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Yay. Pilfering education for entertainment. That's yeah. edutainment. Ooh, We're educational yeah. too. It just, it just happens to come up a lot, okay? I'm just saying. Like, it seems like it's always Yeah, it's relevant. almost like biology is everywhere around us, almost, <gasps> and, like, how we understand the oh world. Oh, my gosh. I feel like you're you're kind of like a biology salesperson I right like now, like, having gotten a biology degree. You're like, yeah. uh... I'm always a biology. <laughs> we have jingles. <laughs> we have jingles and poop facts. That's yeah. all you need. <laughs> Don't you want to be a biologist, too? I always... <laughs> comes back to poop. <laughs> so yeah, so so plants also produce more carbon dioxide than oxygen in certain cases. Um, and so it's, it's like very, very complicated. But it is a true fact that photosynthetic organisms help generate a lot of the oxygen on our planet. And so in order to like dig into the nitty gritty answers of this question, um, there are organisms that predominantly take in carbon dioxide and release oxygen. And most of them are actually not plants. They are mm. photosynthetic bacteria, and largely those bacteria that are in the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, and so scientists estimate, um, according to the uh, NOAA, the, <laughs> according to my buddy Noah, the <laughs> <laughs> He's really smart. Trust me yeah. on this one. Um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reports that roughly half the oxygen production on Earth comes from the ocean, and specifically oceanic plankton. And one of the main species that contributes to oxygen in our biosphere, up to around 20% of the oxygen in our entire biosphere, which is a, a massive amount, is a wow. tiny marine cyanobacterium named Prochlorococcus, mm. um, which is the smallest and most abundant photosynthetic organism on earth there are um around 10 to the 27 cells on the planet as estimated global population i'm not good with big numbers and so i was like trying to find something to compare it to um and was struggling with that but it is it is a large large amount for such a small organism the cell diameter is around 0.5 to 0.7 micrometers it's very um, small so teeny teeny tiny but very very many of them and and they photosynthesize and they end up producing through their photosynthesis fixate fixing carbon creating energy and releasing a lot of oxygen to our planet cool. and thanks pro chlorococcus yeah. <laughs> appreciate Just it a little guy I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of you right now every time you breathe every time yeah. i breathe this, um this airs for you and so looking at bacteria is is where we've got to look for weird photosynthesis. There are a couple of animals that do photosynthesis to supplement their cellular respiration, but they usually are symbiotic with an algae. And I figured I'd mention them because they're just so weird to talk about. Mm. Um, but there oh. is a sea slug named Alicia timida um, that can steal whole chloroplasts from the cells of the algae that it eats. So it eats algae to get energy in the way that we would eat a salad. But then also in munching on them, its cells are like, I'm just going to take some of the photosynthetic ability. Whoa, Alicia. It in my cell. 
Yeah. You're so cool. You you said it's you said it's a sea it slug. It's a sea slug. Yes. I've heard of like nudibranchs eating, you know, like other what like cnidarians and kind of stealing the little stinging cells, like the nematocysts, mm-hmm. to protect themselves. But I've never heard of them stealing chloroplasts. That's so mm-hmm. cool. Well, yeah. You just dropped a whole lot of yeah. vocab right there. <laughs> Sorry, it's like I've I've heard of sea slugs eating like stinging, <laughs> um, you know, sea animals, and then like they they somehow don't trigger the Stingy little bits. biological trigger on the stinging cell because it looks like a microscopic yeah. harpoon when you zoom in on it and they like store them in their body so if anything tries to attack them surprise they got like, some they stings. now they're like the, they're like the ditto of the ocean <laughs> they can just like steal your pokemon's ability and then turn around and mm. use it and they kind of look like ditto they're like little amorphous little blobs Very cute. and these sea slugs do yeah. look a little bit like pokemon too they look like a little green little green guy almost yeah. like a leaf that's me also um using my human perspective where i'm like of course it's green <laughs> of course it's a li- well green for the the photosynthetic pigment but then of course it looks a little bit like a squishy leaf uh, yeah. because that's what i'm used to looking at that of of objects that photosynthesize or living organisms i guess that photosynthesize but there are and there's another fun animal that does a similar thing there's a spotted salamander named ambistoma maculatum who's lays their eggs in in ponds and for a while there was it was understood that there was a relationship between a single-celled alga called Uphila ambulistomatis um the the Ophila, Ophila um is like egg loving um so the mm-hmm. the whole alga uh, genus and species was named after its association with these salamander eggs but hmm. upon further investigation it seems like there is a more symbiotic relationship between the salamander embryo and the algae to the point where the algae is getting incorporated into its cells and the photosynthesis is supplementing the cellular respiration in a way that is very cool and weird so there are potentially photosynthetic animals out there that are doing this is so cool i thought you were going to talk about coral that was like for sure where (laughs) i thought you were going to go with this because when you think when i think like animals symbiotic with algae for nutrients i think coral and i I had never heard of this sea slug or this salamander before Mm -hmm. because i think a lot of people another like kind of that's absurd question that i'm surprised we haven't gotten is like what if we were photosynthetic Mm -hmm. sort of thing right and like I've always just been like, well, what's really going to be the benefit of that? So I'm curious, do you know, like, how much of their, uh, you know, nutritional needs are met by being merged with these algae or anything? Did the research cover any of that? I, um, I don't think they've delved into, like, the percentages, differentials of these things. I think they're mostly just studying that the relationship exists and that these things seem to mm. be um, occupying space in their cells and trying to figure out what products of photosynthesis, like how that oxygen and how that glucose um, is being utilized by the cells. So I don't think there is a percentage of like, do they have to eat less? We haven't studied one Mm. photosynthesizing and one not. but there's your grant right there. Hey, there you go, Julia. Yeah, right? It's so cool. (laughs) I, I could see the advantage though. Like even if it's not a lot, if you know you're in competition with other organisms and like you have a leg up on just not needing quite as much because you've got a source from like sunlight i can see it being beneficial it's so so Mm -hmm. cool yeah 
Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the key word too, is it's beneficial. It's beneficial for them, but they haven't fully reversed the process. Like there is, they mm-hmm. still need oxygen and they're still exhaling carbon dioxide, even with this photosynthetic component. Um, and the problem with photosynthesis, but also any sort of anaerobic cellular respiration. So there are certain bacteria that can do cellular respiration, can take like break down a sugar and get energy from it without using oxygen. They use a different terminal electron receptor. The problem with both of these things is that the rate is so slow. And I couldn't quite figure out why because the chemistry gets complicated, but my guess is that we have iterated evolutionarily enough on aerobic respiration or just stumbled upon it chemically that it works well. Aerobic cellular respiration, about one molecule of glucose yields around 30 to 32 ATP molecules, whereas anaerobic respiration results in the production of around two ATP molecules and uh, photosynthesis Mm -hmm. It yields in in like the light reactions um, around one to one point five ATP molecules. So by comparison, using similar biochemical pathways, aerobic respiration is the one that produces the volume of energy we need to do all the things that animals do that bigger organisms have to deal with that a single cell bacteria or archaea doesn't need to and i guess that's why the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell and that is what has allowed life to proliferate in the way that it has Mm -hmm. from single-celled bacteria to plants and animals and all these like gigantic, relatively speaking, organisms is that we have the energy systems in place to make our cells work together and signal to each other and grow bigger and then run the muscles that we need. And the way that we can get that energy is by consuming food and then using cellular respiration with a terminal oxygen receptor um, to create energy. So I guess I kind of uh, answered every everything except for the question which you know <laughs> <Right. Yeah>. uh, <laughs> was a strategy um so what if humans breathed in carbon dioxide and exhaled oxygen i think all life would have to be different like yeah. that that is the answer to this question is when you dig into this yeah. question it's not just humans that breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide it is every single living cell um and so like our our fundamentals of chemistry would need to be different and or we would have to figure out how to accelerate the rate of energy production um in anaerobic respiration or in in some other thing like photosynthesis like we wouldn't be able to be as big because we wouldn't have as much energy or Mm -hmm. like we just wouldn't be able to exist. We wouldn't be. We couldn't well, think I, because that takes so much energy. I, I see. Yeah, I see several possibilities, right? Like either we've somehow also become some hosts for like a, <laughs> a photosynthetic cell, right? Mm. And so, but then you'd need the surface area. If you're going to have more oxygen exhaled than CO2, right? You'd have to look I like a you. tree. So we'd, we'd all be, we'd all be nudists. <laughs> <laughs> we would be naked and if green. Would... We would be the jolly green giant and maybe not as big. Yeah. Leaves yeah. for hair. I just realized 
you just justified why, why all the sexy like space sci-fi Alien? I was that's like, exactly what I was thinking of. are all like green barely clothed yeah, they're like we need individuals this for, we're only covering up because your species is so prudish and we need the sunlight yeah. you don't understand what it's like to breathe through your skin Ugh. right like to by ha- by having access to light Freaking atp you know fascists yeah. over here Ex- expand your mind <laughs> yeah exactly oh what you just eat another animal that's that's <laughs> weird we just have to be naked, which is harming nobody. Except for your delicate sensibilities. And you're out here eating other things. <laughs> right. Like Sari said, like we like the fundamentals of chemistry would have to be different, right? Because we get energy by breaking those bonds in glucose and releasing CO2, but it would have to be the other way around. Like there would have to be more energy released by turning co2 into oxygen and that just fundamentally changes like so much chemistry it would be it would be world changing it would be massively different hard to imagine and i think that's what's fun fun about this podcast and it's also stretching some muscles that i don't get to exercise like what if we broke chemistry and put it back together uh i don't know that is so cool well thanks sari let's uh take a quick break and come back for our last question of the episode Welcome back to That's Absurd. Please elaborate. We've had Trace's question. We've had Sari answer a question. And now it is my turn. And I'm actually answering a question from Sari. Sari, what was your question this episode? So I sent a list of questions, like you mentioned, but the bangers, so good. bangers all <laughs> the the one you chose that I'm very excited to talk about is will the continents ever form another Pangea? Hmm. How did you, because you mentioned you had no, like, absurd questions, and then you came up with, like, five. What was your process? Like, did you just go to an oxygen bar Uh, and then, like... (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I just stared at my cat, and she told me some jokes, and then I uh, picked the best ones. No. And you're like, I'd rather be thinking of anything else, and then you let your mind wander, because she's she's, she's pretty rough. That's a dog comedian joke again. Dang it. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I, I took it like an assignment, kind of, because I'm a very serious <laughs> nerd. Um, so I was like, how can, what questions do I have that are weird and absurd and fun to answer? Um, and I don't know a ton about geology. Geology, mm. everything that I learn about rocks astounds me, I, I feel like. And so I was thinking about tectonic plates and I was mulling over questions like, well, what if they moved faster? What if other like other phenomena related to them? And then I accelerated that process. And instead of like, what if they moved faster? What is the end point of of tectonic plates? Or I guess mm. there is not an end point. They're just going to keep moving. Oh, oh, oh. We can get to that be- too because I looked into that. <laughs> the tectonics is over. Uh, but- so can- so over, so over. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this idea of like a supercontinent of Pangea is so wild. Uh, and then we've now created all these different ecosystems now that we're separated by oceans, but wondering if our land masses will ever rejoin or what, what the future of the Earth is going to look like. 
I think this is a fantastic question. I also think, like, you know, you mentioned, oh, I don't know about geology, but, like, you're really thinking like a geologist because it's, like, such a, a good, you know, just way of, like, looking at what we know and going, like, well, if we move this forward, what's going to happen? Because this is, as a matter of fact, a topic of some research and debate in the field of geology. I, I'll confess, I mean, I know nothing, but I know especially nothing about geology. Mm. And so I had to turn to an Ooh. expert. I called a, a for realsies geologist. Uh, you journalisted? This is, yeah, this is my wow. I did I'm a journalism. I'm so proud of you, buddy. Thank you. I was like, I've got, we've got Sari Riley coming in. Like, I'm gonna, <laughs> I have to like do a good yeah. job, or I'll embarrass myself more so than usual. So. I called up a friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Jen Cotton. She teaches geology and climate at CSU Northridge. Uh, I met her rock climbing, which Very. I think is appropriate. Mm -hmm. I had a science t-shirt on, and she came up to me and was like, I like your science t-shirt. And I'm like, thanks, I make YouTube videos. And she's like, that's cool. I'm a doctor in geology. And I was like, You're oh, cooler crap. than me. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, she rocks. Solid. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> Wow, that that kind of study uh, has a lot of layers. Oh my god, <laughs> these are really oh, coming no. way easier than the cat ones. I know what's going on, uh, <laughs> which is shocking. You'd think there'd be the rife with cat puns, no. but no. You give geology, me a geology jokes. joke, and uh, man, I'll just get peak trace. You know what I'm saying? Hey. <laughs> 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 okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't bring this up. It's my fault. <laughs> that was good. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I like I said, I know especially nothing about geology, so every time I talk to Jen and she, like, tells me, she kind of acts like I know anything, and then I have to be like, I didn't understand any of that. <laughs> like, I have especially no concept of time when it comes to geology. Like, the figures for, like, the years are so enormous that I really struggle with it. Um, so, I asked her, though, like, could there potentially be another supercontinent in the future? First of all, Jen said, good question. So nice, yes. nice, Sari. Thanks for that. <laughs> and then she, yeah, make, make me look cool to her. <sighs> Woo! She's, and so uh, Dr. Cotton told me, nobody knows for sure, but there's no reason that it can't happen <gasps> again. So in all likelihood, yes. And as a matter of fact, there are uh, people who have made like predictions on when and where that will happen. But it's also important to know Pangaea was not the first <gasps> supercontinent. Oh, like I think timescales are so hard to grasp. Tell me if you're different than I am. But when my non-geology knowing self thinks about like the history of the Earth, it's like started as Pangaea and then became what we know today, right? Is that kind of where you two are at with your mental picture of Earth history? Or is it different? I, mean, I think of like started as a molten ball of floating in right, space. Right, right. And then, and then ocean. But like first landmass was Pangaea. Yeah, I guess I never thought separated. about it as like it cooled and it was probably some kind of like archipelago you know something else i never yeah, yeah. i guess you're right yeah then, i think yeah. of like okay cool there was probably land but eventually it coalesced into pangea and that's when you know we really kick it off and that's when the rubber meets yeah. the road so to speak but here's the thing about the time scales of the earth right is like pangea existed probably at, it started really coming together at the beginning of the triassic which is like the first of the three like eras that dinosaurs existed in right and that's about 
245 million years ago. That's not is that when long. you get Pangaea. It's but before that, that, yeah, the the continents were more dispersed. Uh, before Pangaea, a lot of those continents were grouped together in another supercontinent. It just didn't include all of them, but it was called Gondwana Land, right? Uh, but if you rewind the clock farther back, there's pretty good evidence that at some point all the continents were in another massive lump, and that continent geologists call Rodinia. Ooh, I have heard that term. For perspective, Pangaea came into existence about 245 million years ago. Rodinia existed probably about 1.1 billion Way years ago. Way longer ago. Is when cool. it first formed. Way farther back. Farther back than uh, the existence of multicellular life forms. Wow. Right? So the Earth at this point still pretty much all a unicellular party. So it formed about 1.1 billion years ago, and then it split up. 750 to 650 million years ago. There's actually a hypothesis that Rodinia breaking up might have triggered this change, this this growth evolution of multicellular organisms. That's so, wild. Yeah. What? It is. It when you study evolution and biology and the history of it it's incredible how much it's tied to geology and the way that the shifting earth influences the course that that totally makes sense though because we all live on it Mm -hmm. so that totally makes sense but i don't think that we typically talk about it that way i mean geologists probably do they're all like they're all listening to this all the geologists out there all of them and they're just like yeah Obviously, <laughs> listen yeah. to these idiots. Like, everybody thinks we just look at minerals all day, but it's yeah. so, like, is this one of those so, memes where like this is what I think you do, and it's like somebody out hitting rocks with a stick, and it's like what you actually do, and it's like everything, yeah, what it, all of it. You're welcome. Yeah, right. Geology's the bedrock science. Hey, hey. Okay, so I don't know why. No, we there, held there's on to that so long. <laughs> There's there's a hypothesis that because Rodinia broke apart, it created conditions. You know, it's going to change the Earth's climate as the flow of water changes, as, uh, you know, you get um, less inland area. Because when you have a big supercontinent, right, it's harder for water to reach inland areas. And so you get like a big heat source there in the middle of it. So when Rodinia broke apart, it's also coincidentally about the time we see these... Um, you know, multicellular organisms coming about. And so it's possible that it catalyzed that movement by changing the conditions of planet Earth. So uh, furthermore, when Pangaea started forming also coincides with the single biggest extinction event in Earth's history, right? Like the Great Permian die-off is when 90 to 99% of all life on Earth died. Ooh. And it's right when Pangaea is coming together. So. Wow. These That's things are Pangea super metal. Pangea. It's really rock and roll, I think. <laughs> it's hard. I think it'd be hardcore. I mean, I thought the core was hard, and then like the, the mantle that's not the hard. The mantle is more liquidy. We'd have to ask a uh, Yeah, I'll have to call her back up and see if she's doing anything. Okay. Guys, we are punning like crazy here at the end. <laughs> Getting them all in. There's a minimum quota we have to hit, and we couldn't figure out any cat punts. Okay, so yeah, you've got that previous supercontinent Rodinia, but um, you know we don't see a lot of evidence in the in the fossil record because I asked Dr. Cotton like 
one of the big reasons that we understand the distribution of related species today the way we do is because we understand that the Earth's crust moves and continents shift around, right? Like you'll have organisms in like Asia and North America that are like the only close relatives they have of each other. And you're like, how is that possible? And it's like, well, when you rewind the clock, these two land masses were probably touching each other and they came from a common ancestor and then the lands separated, right? So yeah, there was Rodinia before, but it was before multicellular life. So we don't see like in the fossil record really anything there. And then you get Pangaea and because Pangaea is during the time of dinosaurs and, you know, large multicellular organisms, I think that's why it's so in the public consciousness as like the supercontinent. Mm -hmm. And then things break up and spread apart. And then if you... If you fast forward the clock, uh, in all likelihood, we're going to get another supercontinent again. There's kind of no reason why not. So a big proponent of this is a a pretty well-known geologist named Christopher Scotese. He has a website called scotese.com. And let me tell you something. uh, It is like time traveling, both because you can click on like different eras, past and future of the Earth and see like what he thinks the Earth is going to look like. And also because the web design is from the 1990s. (laughs) So... (laughs) So if you if you click on it, like it's very 90s tastic, but the information's great. It's super useful. They also have an app, which, yes, I did buy uh, in the app store for $2.99. I'll have to take that out of the podcast budget. Yeah, sure. But it's it's called uh, Breakup of Pangea or Ancient Earth Breakup of Pangea. And you could actually on your phone, like kind of fast forward to like the end of Pangaea to today and see how all the, the different pieces move around. It's really cool. I had no idea. The Indian subcontinent was freaking booking it over to Eurasia huh. if, when Pangaea broke up. It was moving like 20 centimeters a year, which is nuts, which in geological terms is like freaking dragster racing. Just absolutely flying, uh, which is why the Himalayas are so tall, because when they collided and it was moving so fast, it pushed up those mountains and made them really tall. And also that probably triggered uh, the cool ice house earth period that we live in today, because the the rocks from the Himalayas, uh, when they were exposed, probably absorbed a lot of CO2 and dropped our global temperature enough so we could have like polar ice caps and stuff. Geology is super important to life is what I've learned. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So when Rodia. Rodinia. Rodinia. Sorry, I just said knee in Spanish. Broke up. <laughs> did it break up and go like, does it always like go around? Is it like, oh, it was here. And then it kind of breaks up and hits on the other side of the planet. And we just kind of keep going it back and forth. It meets up on the other end. Yeah, they just meet up on the other side of the globe, back and forth no. forever. No, it turns out the movement of continental plates is really difficult to predict because, um, you know, it might float over hot spots in the mantle or like features on the sea floor might just suddenly change its direction and stuff starts going the other way. And so that's part of why it's really hard to predict in the future what the next supercontinent will look like which by the way christopher scotese calls pangea proxima right the next Mm. supercontinent so we don't know exactly what it's going to look like and in the past because things subduct right the earth's Mm. crust is really like constantly reforming and 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 melting and changing so it's also hard for us to know exactly what it looked like but based on the evidence we have today we're pretty sure that it did exist because there are pieces, you know, that have similar minerals from around that time period that we also don't think were touching each other during Pangaea. So that's why we think there must have been Got it. another supercontinent. Hmm. So when this happens at some point in the future, and, and we don't know when, it could be 
250 million years from now is when Scotese thinks it'll happen. So, you know, don't hold your breath or anything. In all likelihood, it's going to have a lot of those same effects of like totally changing the Earth's climate and uh, massive effects on biodiversity. Um, Mm. The Mediterranean Sea, by the way, is going to be gone in a few uh, (gasps) tens of millions of years. Africa's just going to smash into Europe. So don't bother buying beachfront property in Barcelona, I guess. (laughs) Scotese thinks that um, North America and South America are going to come back to Europe. And yeah, it's going to be one big reunion party. We're going to get the band back together. But in the past, when we see these continental movements, it's insane to think like the effects that they've had on biodiversity. Like you all know about the uh, the Isthmus of Panama. I've heard of it. Do you? Don't you? I've heard of Panama. Right. So when you look at a map of North and South America, right, and there's like that thin little connection of Panama between the two, it kind of looks like that was always going to be the case. Mm -hmm. But as recently as three million years ago, Panama wasn't there. There was no boundary between the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean, and those currents could flow freely. But for since the breakup of Pangaea, South America had been an entirely isolated continent. And so the life that was on in South America was really, really different from what was in North America. Yeah. You had my favorite thing that I found out lived there were these animals, these birds, gigantic ground based predatory birds that are known colloquially as terror mm-hmm. birds. Oh, yeah. I did and a video are, about those. They're huge. Yeah. They're like three meters tall with like huge heavy sharp beaks right and they're just like the dominant predator in south america because after pangaea and the age of the dinosaurs like they're what's left there you know but meanwhile in north america you've got mammals and you've got actually you've got elephants and and all this crazy stuff up in north america that since mammals have taken over has, has been you know kicking evolutionary booty up there so panama is this little like volcanic wedge that just slides in there and boom all of a sudden these two totally separate biospheres can like intermix oh that would be so cool when people are like you want to go back in time and see something and i'm like oh do i do I? and it's like giant sloths please (laughs) the united states's great deserts with elephants and camels and saber-tooth things and terror birds and all sorts there's way cooler stuff than like people are like i'd like to go back and see the beatles and it's like the beatles are cool but you know what's cooler all of history (laughs) giant predatory beetles which i assume existed somewhere oh my god yeah they had giant dragonflies during the oxygen earth period so there has to be big beetles too bonkers when panama slid into place you got what's known as the great american biotic uh interchange and like animals from north and south america start flooding into each other's territories but what's bananas is the south american animals did not do nearly as well as the north american ones like some terror birds made it up to north america but because of like the colder climate and like the presence of more large predators like big cats that they had to compete with probably the swings in temperature because of the tilt of the earth you go up there you're actually get bigger temperature swings yeah terror birds only lasted in north america like a few million years and their presence in the fossil record up here is really really small we've only found like a handful of samples in a few different locations as a result so dr cotton thinks that if uh pangea proxima happens something similar might happen with continents that have been isolated for a long time like australia 
where these animals that were kind of on their own and developing in a, in a vacuum uh, aren't going to be able to compete. Now, I countered that with the fact that Australia is a nightmare. <laughs> Yeah. And that it's just a constant cage match. Yeah. Uh, so I think they're going to take over everything. <laughs> but, it, you know, I would also put my money on the terror birds and apparently lose. So I'm going to take Dr. Cotton's opinion over mine on this one. That's so funny. So wow. you're going to have probably a few hundred million years. The, the band's going to be back together. Uh, you're going to have massive changes in the climate. It's probably going to be a lot hotter because there's so much more inland area that water can't get to. And also, you know, like the flow of ocean water is going to be completely different. And you're probably going to have to say goodbye to the marsupials is what Aww. I learned. Why? Yeah, be- because they just can't hang. Can't oh, man. They can't hang with the... Yeah, with like the rest of us. What about like a koala? Put all my animals in one little yeah. little enclosure, and they fought to the death. Uh, so, oh my gosh! You know, <laughs> who knew? Oh my gosh! Zoo tycoon, yeah. Tiger King edition. Oh my gosh! Wow. That's Ugh. all it is. <laughs> yeah, you're like, see the future Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Meet the terror bird, which is also uh, the, the past. Oh, it's dead. It's dead. Oh, Sorry. a cat you got can't it. Meet it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Maybe that's why cats are so good at hunting birds still, is it's really like they had to, to get rid of the competition and the terror birds. Yeah. And it's still get them when they're deep small. in them at some point. That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> Can't let them rise up again. So the continents will form another Pangea. Yeah. But it won't but it won't be called that necessarily. Yeah, well we'll all be dead by Someone then. Someone else will so get to choose the name. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Someone will call it something else. Oh, and just to touch on quickly, because I also, while I was looking into it, had the thought of, is plate tectonics going to continue indefinitely? Mm. And this is uh, hotly debated among geologists. Hey. Uh, But not a question of if, just a question of when. Like I saw some studies say it'll probably happen in the next 1.4 billion years. And other geologists were like, that's ridiculous. It'll probably take about 5 billion years. But the point is, at some point, that heat from within the mantle is going to cool enough that you don't get these sliding plates on top of it anymore. And everything's going to kind of lock into place. And you'll probably lose almost all volcanic activity. Not, Not completely, but the vast majority of it there's not going to be anywhere for that magma to seep up through and again the earth's climate the implications are going to be massive right when things can't move around anymore when everything's locked into place and a lot of the heat exchange just like ends it's going to be hugely hugely different for earth Hmm. and um Mars is a, a planet that we think had like failed plate tectonics. And so things that we see on Mars are probably evidence of that. Uh, yeah, like uh, the, the tallest volcano in the solar system is on Mars right. because it like was a plume in one spot where the plate wasn't moving around. But oh. um, yeah. So as things yeah. start to lock up, it's not like there's no heat. And there's it, like I was picturing children of men where just like all of a sudden <laughs> there are no volcanoes. All the land is that's what it's going to be forever. And mm-hmm. everybody's sad about it. But Wait, what now what I'm thinking is more like, okay, well, slowly but surely different places lock up and there are still places that are super that become more active because it's the only place heat can Mm -hmm. escape. And it might take a long time. We're talking geologic time, right? So it takes a while Mm -hmm. for the heat to move around. But once it does, it's going to be serious. Yeah. And who knows? These things are really difficult to predict. Yeah. Um, and Pangea Proxima, right, for context, we think, like, oh, probably another 250 million years or so. But, like, plate tectonics ending, I saw, like I said, 1.4 billion to 5 billion years, which is when the sun's going to explode or expand and swallow us anyway. Yeah. So uh, I, I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> you can worry a little. 
Yeah, I mean, worry <laughs> yeah. a little if you want. Like, we're not your mm-hmm. dad, but... If you're a listener who's also planning to cryogenically freeze your head and try and make it that amount of time, then I would worry about it. Sure. In all other instances... Oh, or if you're a space traveler who's going to travel, like, right. relativistic speeds mm-hmm. yeah. to jump into the future. And that's kind of the edge cases, and otherwise you're probably going to be fine. I was just thinking of that Doctor Who episode where they went to, like, the end of what Earth is, and I'm like, dude, that they probably had, like, the total wrong animation of what Earth looked like, because they probably still had our continents, all those would have been gone. Like, everything that we know of would have been smashed into different places, and... Yeah, this is the thing that trips me up about geology. I think more so than astronomy or cosmology, it makes me feel so small, mm. because we think of the continents and the maps of the, the planet, right, in, like pretty set terms at least that's my solid right like we think of it like oh if i jump back you know if i had a time machine and went back several million years it would look like this no it would look completely different yet another failure in the back to the future franchise (laughs) not only would that car have to time travel into a different part of of the universe every time it moved because earth would have moved out of the way not only that but it would have had to move to a different part of the of earth as well because like you go back super far in time maybe you know california is not even in that spot anymore the twin pines mall that's not even land oh that it just a string of disappointments (laughs) yeah california is probably headed towards alaska in pangea proxima and but before that you know a lot of california the coastline wasn't there because like it's where two plates are joining and that's why we have that fault line that shakes us so much but yeah a lot of the california coast just wasn't there until not too long ago in geological terms yeah right so this is yeah when i think about like how different the planet was in in geological terms not that long ago um but compared to like all of human history right we only go back like a few hundred thousand years and then written history just a few thousand years and nothing's really moved in that time so like everything's oh the mediterranean like the great empires of greece and rome and the tigris and euphrates and all this that's like all in one place and it's and then i learned like oh yeah and africa's gonna crush that to nothing in a few uh tens of millions of years so all of that's meaningless I mean, if you're, in the future if you're fans of carthage then it already did crush a lot of it to yeah nothing. carthage will have its revenge on rome <laughs> anyway back to <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, thank you for answering that question, Julian. And Sari, thank you for asking it, because that was super neat. And I did not know as much about geology. Yeah, that was amazing, Julian. You went above and beyond. <laughs> I, I really was intrigued by it, and I wanted to do a good job. So thank you. It was it was a great question. You had so many. We're, we're going to get to more yeah, in the Yeah, we're going to have to have you back being on. to answer more of our questions and your questions. Yeah, for you sure. can take future episodes off. You don't have to listen to Cat stand up and to, to ideate. Like, we've got some in the bank, so we'll, we'll have more in the future (laughs) well thanks everyone for listening to this episode of that's absurd please elaborate and thank you very much to our special guest sari riley sari can you tell people where they might want to find you and ask you more funny cat pun questions the best place to find me is my podcast scishow tangents and you can ask us questions on Twitter, X, whatever uh, it exists as. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, SciShow Tangents, where we upload the video form of the podcast. And I am around the internet, uh, mostly as C.E. Riley, C. Riley, uh, my first and last name squished together into one handle. But I'm... And a little Pangea. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm a Pangea, and hopefully not drifting <laughs> apart. <laughs> I mean, any more than the normal existential, I'm on the internet and drifting yes, into people. Uh, 
glasses. That's it. I can do that. And then I'll, I'll be dead way before the rocks move. So it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. Julian, uh, where can people find you as well? Instagram or threads. I'm at hug it out. H-U-G-G-E-T-O-U-T. Cool. And I'm Trace Dominguez. You can find me by looking for Trace Dominguez on wherever. I'm all over the place. And you can also look in our show notes. If you have a question that you want to uh, get answered by our podcast, go down to the show notes and go to our website. That's absurdshow.com slash ask. And you can put in a question there. Or you can also send it to us on our email. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of That's Absurd, Please Elaborate was edited by Kyle Sisk. It was produced and created by Julian and myself. And of course, again, our special guest today, Sari Riley. So thanks everyone for listening. Please follow subscribe leave us a review wherever it is that you are listening and uh, we will see you in two weeks